Good morning, Grace. Uh, like Walt said, if you don't know me, my name is Jackson Randall. Um, I have been coming to church here at Grace for about seven years now, which is crazy. And for most of that time, I've been serving in some capacity with the student ministry, currently is the pastor of student ministry. So it's awesome to see all of our students and leaders out here. You guys are awesome. Uh, I'm married to Raylin over here. We've been married for about two and a half years. And we love grace. We love serving in the way that we serve here. We love having you as our faith family. Week in and week out, we get to sit alongside you and have the word form us more and more to the image of Christ. And so to be able to do that uh, alongside you guys as a community of believers is just awesome. We love it. And because of that, uh, it makes me so absolutely pleased and joyful. And, and I just feel so privileged that I could stand before you today and preach God's word. And, and my prayer and my hope is, is that God would uniquely apply this word to our hearts and that we would behold the glory of God on the face of Christ. And as a result, we would worship God and our idols would fall by the wayside because of God's word here this morning. So uh, today, this morning, we're going to be in Mark 4, 35 through 520. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to provide you with one. We have ushers in the back who have Bibles, so raise your hand. They'll get you one. We'd love for your eyes to be on the text this morning. So they're in the back and they're for you. Mark 4, 35 through 520. Before we really dive into our passage this morning, I just want to direct your attention to verse 41. So if you would look at chapter 4, verse 41. And I'd love for you to look towards the end of that verse. There's a phrase, the disciples of Jesus are responding to an incredible miracle. And they say, who then is this? Who then is this? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? That's the central question we're going to be looking at today. Who then is this? You know, if you're a visitor here with us this morning, uh, as a church, we've been studying through the book of Mark for some time now. And what we've been seeing is, is slowly but surely, Mark is pulling the curtains back and he's telling us the true identity of Jesus. We're seeing Christology. In other words, progressively, we are getting bits and pieces, evidence of who Christ really is. We're finding out the true nature of our king and we're slowly realizing that this king, this Jesus is the son of God and he is on the way to the cross. And so today we're going to see this identity of Jesus revealed in a pretty cool and explicit way. Who is Jesus? Who then is this? That's the question we want to deal with. And the answer to that question, according to Mark 4, 35 through 520, is my first and main point. Who then is this? Jesus is the one who possesses an incredible and divine authority. He possesses incredible and divine authority. He possesses amazing, awesome authority that should lead us to worship and wonder at our king. But we're going to see this divine authority displayed in two stories, two miraculous stories. And as we consider this awesome, divine, amazing authority, we're going to see that we must respond. 
this sort of authority compels us to respond. We cannot sit back and scratch our chins at this sort of authority. We can't let our lives just be the same. When we're confronted with this sort of divine authority, something has to change. And so that'll be my second point, that this divine authority demands a response from us. So once again, first point this morning, Jesus possesses incredible and divine authority. We're going to see that in that Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. If you would read with me verses 35 through 41 in chapter four. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Once again, the question that Mark is dealing with this morning is who is this? Who then is this Jesus? And and our passage doesn't tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. It doesn't give us a complete picture of who Jesus is, but in a powerful and awesome way, it does tell us that Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. And so let's consider this from our passage. Jesus just gets done teaching incredible things. He's teaching parables. He's teaching about the, so, uh, the seeds and the soils. He's teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God. And after a long day of ministry and teaching, he and his disciples get in a boat and they head out into the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, exhausted from a long day of ministry, sleeps. It's crazy to me to consider the inclusion of this little detail. Jesus, in his humanity, is exhausted. He's tired. He's sleepy. He's done ministry all day and now he's tired and wants to take a nap. I know what that feels like. I've slept that sleep many a Sunday, as have many of you probably. You know, we can get that. But unlike you or me, Jesus is about to uniquely demonstrate his divinity. And so Jesus, as he's asleep, a wind begins to blow. And pretty soon this wind turns into a raging storm. And we have to recognize this isn't just a a simple storm. This had to have been a particularly violent storm. There are professional fishermen on board with Jesus. They would have been used to regular old storms. They would have been used to rough waters. But our passage tells us that they were terrified. They were terrified. And, And I think given that to be the case, it's helpful for us to pause and really consider what's going on in the boat at this point. I think there's a temptation here for us to just kind of breeze through passages like this. And, and we might breeze through and we might miss how incredible, what Je- how credible it is what Jesus is doing here. We might just blaze through and be like, oh, that's great and move on. But we need to get how awesome this is. And so, Well, as we consider the book of Mark, it's helpful to recognize that up until this point, Mark has moved very quickly. He moves from event to event. 
It moves from action to action. He says immediately all the time. It's a very fast-moving book. But here in Mark, uniquely, he deviates. He does something a little bit different. And so what does he do different? He starts to include all of these random little details, these little bits of information. And so he tells us that they weren't alone out on the sea. There were other boats that were with them. He tells us that Jesus was asleep. Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. He tells us that the boat was taking on water. We get all these little details that are included. And I think we have to recognize that Mark is doing something different. He's going against the norm for a reason. He's trying to communicate something to us. And I think what he's doing is he's trying to communicate to us how hopeless and impossible this situation is. He's painting for us a vivid picture where we might feel what the disciples are feeling in this moment. This is a scary prospect. There is water in the boat. They are going to sink. This isn't some ho-hum, no big deal sort of event. Water is in the boat. They are taking on water and they are going down. You know, as Californians, I think we should be able to uniquely appreciate this passage. We should presumably be a little bit more used to the water. We, maybe more so than some others, know how dangerous and unpredictable and powerful water can be. You know, I've been surfing before. I've been in a boat with rough, uh, on rough seas before. It is scary. Water is uniquely terrifying. Water in the midst of a storm is especially terrifying. So I think we could feel that. And and the people in the biblical times, and especially the ancient Near East, they would get that as well. Oftentimes seas and oceans and lakes were associated with chaos. Water is that thing that cannot be tamed. And so this is the context in which Jesus demonstrates his divine authority. And so as this raging storm happens, what does Jesus do? He continues to sleep. He continues to sleep. How ridiculous is it that Jesus has such incredible faith in his father that in the midst of this storm, he would continue to sleep. But his disciples wake him. And in verse 38, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? It's a striking question. Does Jesus not care that we are perishing? And so Jesus then wakes up and in his exhaustion, he utters three words, peace, be still. Peace, be still. Three words, three authoritative words and the storm is gone. The storm is gone. Verse 39 tells us that the storm didn't just go away. There was a great calm on the water. Some translate this as a perfect calm. And so the picture we have is this one second, there is complete chaos. There is violence. There is turbulence. Everything's rocking back and forth. And then Jesus utters three words and there is a perfect calm. Ducks are going along on the water. Sun is shining through. It is drastic how different these two things are. There is a perfect calm. There are no more ripples in the water. Jesus doesn't just stop the the wind and the waves. He uh, stops the effects of the wind and the waves. What authority does Jesus have? When I was young, my, my family and I used to go to the beach for vacation. And 
whenever we would go on these vacations, I would usually go down to the beach and right where the waves were crashing, I'd usually kind of wade out into the water a little bit and I would do karate moves to try to stop the waves from coming to the ocean. So I would punch them or kick them or karate chop them and it was a lot of fun for me as a kid. And the way this always worked is a wave would come and I would chop at it and simultaneously the wave would smack me in the face and inevitably I would get tumbled underneath the wave. And it was a lot of fun for me as a kid, but it demonstrates how much authority you or I have over the wind and the waves. This is what happens when we confront the waves. But Jesus utters three words, peace be still, and there is perfect calm. What authority that Christ has. Jesus is in fact the Lord of the wind and the waves. And so we see Mark pulling the curtain back. Who is this Jesus? He is the one who rules the wind and the waves. He is the one who has divine authority. We're getting a glimpse that this one is the son of God. But Mark wants to drive this this picture home, this idea home, so he continues on and we continue to see, or we see this story unfold even further. Jesus not only has divine authority over the wind and the waves, he has divine authority over uh, spiritual forces of evil. We see that in Mark 5, verses 1 through 13. If you would read with me, please. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So what we see is, is Jesus and his disciples, they arrive on the other side of the lake. They go through the storm, they arrive on this other side of the lake and immediately they're thrust into another seemingly impossible and hopeless situation. Look at all the details about this man with an unclean spirit that we see in Mark 5. This man lived among the tombs. No one could bind him. He was bound with shackles and chains, but he broke free. He howled and shrieked at night. He cut himself, and on and on it goes. In my Bible, there are six lines of text devoted to this man's condition. Now, that's kind of unscientific, but I think it makes a legitimate point. Mark is devoting a ton of space to who this man is and his condition. And I think what we're seeing here is this man was in an impossible spot. He was in a hopeless spot. 
He was living among the tombs. He had been given over unto death. Human convention had failed him. Shackles could not keep him anymore. I don't think we need to be experts on demons here to know that this is a scary situation. This is a hopeless and impossible situation. This man is not in a good spot. But not only that, this spot is made even worse when we realize that it wasn't just an unclean spirit or a single demon that was possessing this man. He reveals his name to be Legion, for we are many. There are many demons possessing this man. Some would say an army of demons are possessing this man. This is a terrible spot to be in, an impossible spot to be in. And so this hopeless, demon-possessed man sees Jesus from far off and he runs and he falls down before him. He runs and he falls down before him. And, and lest we think that he might have tripped and just happened to fall, many point out, many commentators point out that he actually fell and prostrated himself on the ground before Jesus in a posture of submission to Jesus. And there on the ground, he cried out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Charles Spurgeon comments on this, uh, assuming that the demon is speaking through Jesus. And he says, he is afraid of Christ. This dog of hell knows his master and he crouches at his feet. He beseeches the son of the most high God not to torment him before his time. This demon, this dog of hell responds so appropriately to Christ. He falls down before him. He prostrates himself on the ground and he cries out to Jesus. And our text tells us that this man um, says all of this because Jesus was in the process of casting the demon out. And so then the demon reveals his name as Legion and then he earnestly begs Jesus not to be sent away out of the region. And, and as we consider this, I just want to draw your attention to how incredibly in control Jesus was in all of this. Some will say that, that what's happening here is called a power encounter. The demon was trying to one-up Jesus. He was trying to get the upper hand and express his authority over Jesus by doing these different things. And I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that this demon-possessed man, this army of demons for a second thought that they might have authority over Jesus. I think they knew their place. Consider the demon-possessed man runs and falls down before Jesus, prostrates himself before Jesus. He earnestly begged Jesus not to destroy him. He begged Jesus for mercy. And all the while, we see Jesus sitting there calmly saying, hey, what is your name? And then he considers this demon's request to be sent into the pigs. Now, I've never been in the presence of an army of demons that I'm aware of, but I have to imagine that if I was and I was aware of it, that I would not sit there and have a conversation with them. I would be running in the opposite direction. I would be terrified. I would be overcome. But Jesus sits here and he thinks and he scratches his chin and he considers this. He has a conversation here. Is that not crazy? And then almost haphazardly, he gives permission to the demons to enter into the pigs and they are gone. Mark doesn't even record direct speech of Jesus telling them to go and they're gone. They leave when Jesus gives permission. He doesn't anoint them with oil. He doesn't hold up a staff. He doesn't declare them by the power and authority of God to leave. He gives permission and they flee. 
That's the authority of Christ. And, and the result is verse 15. The man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Once again, we see a huge contrast before he was among the tombs and given over unto death, but now he is sitting there clothed in his right mind. It's just like with the storm earlier. At one point it was raging, it was violent, and then it was perfectly calm. We see the same thing happening in this man by the authority of Jesus. Do you see the authority of Christ? Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? The curtain is being pulled back and we are realizing that he is the son of God. He is the one who possesses divine authority. We'll see this be made more and more explicit as we go on in Mark and we will see that this divinely authoritative man is being led to the cross. As I consider this divine authority, I am forced to reflect on how I completely lack this sort of authority. I became so aware of this about three years ago. About three years ago in April, uh, the largest outbreak of tornadoes in the history of the United States happened in the, over the, or in the southeast. And most of it was in the state of Alabama, which is where I'm from. And on that day, I was at a coffee bean in Brea next to the mall, and I was studying for a test for when I was at Talbot. And I got a text message from a friend that said, hey, is your mom all right? And I don't like getting text messages like that. And, uh, and I knew that there were supposed to be some storms in Alabama. I knew that it was going to be some rough weather, but nothing crazy. And I got this text message, and immediately I started to get worried. So I call my mom, and immediately goes to voicemail. And my heart starts to get a little antsy. You guys know that feeling probably. I start to feel a little bit of dread inside of me. And I start to get worried. So I was on my computer. I pulled up Twitter on my computer. And the first thing I see on Twitter is a meteorologist had posted a video of an F5 tornado rolling through Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And for those of you who don't know, an F5 tornado is the biggest tornado. It's the big one. It has winds of upward 300 miles per hour. And at that speed, cars become missiles. It could be up to two miles wide. That would take me around 20 minutes to run from one end of a tornado to the other. 20 minutes to run the length of a tornado. And so I watch this tornado rolling through Tuscaloosa and it is terrifying. It is a sight to behold. And then I look down one post later on Twitter and it says, Tuscaloosa tornado moving towards Hueytown, Alabama and my heart dropped. I am from Hueytown, Alabama. My mom lives in Hueytown, Alabama. And in that moment, in the middle of a coffee bean in Brea, I audibly said, no, no. And as I reflect back on that, it is striking how my no meant nothing. My no meant nothing. I had zero authority over those winds in that moment. Praise the Lord, that storm ended up going a few miles west of my mom's house. It went through part of Hueytown, and, and I'm so glad that it missed uh, the house that I grew up in and where my mom currently lives. But it is humbling to realize the authority that I lacked in that situation. That storm left destruction in its wake. It totally destroyed the town next to mine in Alabama. My no meant nothing. I lacked authority in that situation, but Jesus had complete 
and divine authority in that situation. Jesus could have said, peace, be still, and those winds would have been gone. They would have been done away with. A two-mile-wide tornado would have been gone. There wouldn't have even been a rustling in the, in the trees. Sunlight would have been shining forth, birds chirping on the trees. Jesus had complete and utter authority in that situation. Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. Jesus is the one who possesses divine authority over the forces of spiritual evil. Once again, in Mark, we're seeing beautiful Christology. Jesus' true identity is being revealed to us, and we're seeing this in Mark 4 and 5. And it's a sight to behold. Jesus, the one who has divine authority. And as we consider this divine authority, as we consider what we're seeing here in Mark 4 and 5, we have to recognize something really, really important. This divine authority, the fact that Jesus is ruling over this broken and messed up world, demands that we respond to him. We cannot be okay in light of this divine authority. We cannot keep going with our normal everyday life. This sort of authority has to mess with us. It has to affect us. It's my second point. Jesus' incredible authority demands a response. It demands a response. And I think we see this in in the various responses of the people in Mark 4 and 5 and how they respond to Jesus' authority. In every one of these responses, I think we see the question being answered, how are we to respond to Jesus' divine authority? How are we to respond to Jesus' divine authority? First, I think we respond to Jesus' divine authority by believing, by having faith. And we do this especially in times of trouble, especially in times of trouble. I think we see this in the disciples' lack of faith in verse 38, chapter 4, verse 38. They rebuke Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the winds and the waves, and then in verse 40, he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So Jesus sees the disciples' fear, and he concludes that they lack faith. Now, what's so interesting to me about this is it's not as if the disciples were operating with a promise that they were going to live long lives, or that they weren't going to drown in a boat. And so it seems a little harsh to me for Jesus to see their fear in this legitimately scary situation and conclude they lack faith and therefore rebuke them. But I think if we look at verses 38 and 40 together, we begin to see that Jesus wasn't rebuking their lack of faith in the fact that everything was going to work out all right in the end. Jesus was rebuking their lack of faith in the person and work of Jesus. There is to be an object to their faith, and that is Jesus himself. And so how does Jesus respond to this lack of faith? He demonstrates his divine power and authority that they might believe. He seeks to produce faith in them by peeling the curtain back and giving them a glimpse of his sonship. And I believe that Jesus does this for us as well. Jesus is revealing that he is worthy of our faith. He is seeking to, to, seeking to produce faith in us by demonstrating his divine character. 
We can uniquely look at this passage with gospel lenses. We can see that Jesus has divine authority. He is the Lord of the wind and the waves. He rules over the forces of spiritual evil. He will eventually be declared to be the son of God and he will go to the cross and he will take our sins upon his shoulders. He will die. He will be raised again. He will ascend to the right hand of the father and he will extend himself to us. And we can receive him through faith. And so Jesus says, will you believe in me? We respond to this sort of incredible and divine authority by believing in Jesus' holy name. But the thing is, is this could be really tough. This can be really tough. Many of you find find yourselves in situations that are hard. And in those hard situations, you find faith in Jesus to be incredibly difficult. Your marriage is a hard marriage. You are not seeing the fruit of your labors as a parent. Money is difficult to come by and you're carrying a heavy load as a result. I want to encourage you to remember that Jesus demonstrates his divine authority in the midst of hopeless and impossible situations. He tells us that he is the one who rules over this broken and messed up world. He is the one who possesses divine and sovereign authority over the wind and the waves, over this fallen world. And so we can believe in him. We can trust in his holy name. He is the Lord of your circumstances. And there are some people in our church who who get this so well people who believe in Jesus' holy name in the midst of incredible turmoil and chaos and pain. There are some of you who have dealt with stuff that I cannot comprehend and do not understand, and you have been incredible examples of faith to me. And you have encouraged me, and you have caused me to believe more deeply in Jesus. And I thank you so much for your example of faith. I thank you for how you get this so deeply and so profoundly. And so for those of you who might be suffering or or for those of you who might be having a hard time believing in Jesus, I encourage you to behold this one who has divine authority. Behold him in the pages of this scripture and be encouraged to believe in him, to lean into his holy name and then look to the person to your left and to your right and be encouraged by their example of faith. Be encouraged as they testify to how awesome and wonderful our God is and receive the ministry with which they are giving. And so we respond to Jesus' divine authority by believing in him. But we also respond to Jesus' divine authority by submitting to the authority of Christ. We submit to the authority of Christ. If you would, uh, look at chapter five and read with me, verses 14 through 17. The herdsmen fled And told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So in these verses, we see the townspeople's response. They behold the authority of Christ. They see the the formerly demon-possessed man sitting there clothed in his right mind. They see the pigs drowned in the sea. And they urge Jesus to leave. 
These verses are so incredible. In them, we see those who see and do not perceive. These are people who seem to get that Jesus' authority demands a response. They recognize it is to mess with our lives, yet they stiff arm Jesus and say, no, we refuse to submit to your rule. We we refuse to submit to your reign. We prefer our own comforts. We prefer our own life. We prefer our own pride. We will not submit to you. The problem is, is they are not overwhelmed with the awesome authority of Christ. Instead of saying your way goes, they say my way goes. And what's so terrifying about the townspeople's response is that I see myself in the townspeople so clearly. I see my rebellious tendencies in the townspeople. I see that I am a person who often rejects the rule of Jesus in my life. One key way that I do this is that I often reject the rule and authority of Jesus in his scriptures. So we believe about the scriptures that they are authoritative. That is one of their attributes. So where the scriptures speak, God speaks. Where the scriptures promise, God promises. Where the scriptures command, God commands. Yet often I go to the scriptures and I just read through them and I go about my day. I refuse to believe the uh, the promises of God. I refuse to submit to the commands of God. I refuse to wonder and worship in light of the character of God being revealed. And so I urge you, as you read through this, recognize that we are not to be people who who reject Jesus' awesome authority, but we are to steer into that and submit to his awesome rule and reign. And one of the key ways that we might do that is by going to God in his word, recognizing that he speaks authoritatively in the scriptures. And so when we see a promise, we believe it. When we see a command, even the hard ones, we obey them. When we see God's awesome character being revealed like it is here in chapters four and five, we wonder and say, wow, how awesome is our Lord. Let us submit to the rule of Jesus. And let us do that by going to him in his word and submitting to the scriptures. So we submit in light of Jesus' divine authority. In light of Jesus' divine authority, we also worship. We worship If you look at Mark 4, 41, we see this in the disciples responding now in an appropriate way to Jesus' authority. They are filled with great fear in light of Jesus calming the wind and the waves. They are filled with an appropriate fear of the Lord. In other words, in light of Jesus' divine authority being demonstrated, they worshiped. They had a reverent fear of God. They were in awe of who Jesus was. Their eyes got wide and they went, what in the world is happening here? Who is this? And so they were filled with fear, a reverent and awe-inspiring fear. They worshiped Jesus. And that's how we're to respond as well. Jesus is being revealed to be an awesome God here. He's demonstrating divine authority He's calming the wind and the waves. He's doing things that we cannot do. Let us worship this Lord of Lords. And so as you go in your cars this week, as you talk to your coworkers, as you're spending time in the word, I urge you to reflect on the character of God, especially as revealed in these verses, and worship. 
Say, holy is the Lord. In light of Jesus' divine authority, we worship. And last, in light of Jesus' divine authority, we go. We go. If you would, look at chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Ironically, Mark reveals that the one who probably responds most appropriately to Jesus is the formerly demon-possessed man. And how does he respond? By wanting to go with Jesus. His, his authority uh, um, results in discipleship. But Jesus says, no, I have something else for you. In light of my divine authority, in light of your deliverance, go and tell everybody about what the Lord has done for you. And so here we see that Jesus' authority is to result in gospel proclamation. Remember, Jesus is the one who rules the winds and the waves. Jesus is the one who has divine authority over the forces of spiritual evil. But he is also the one who goes to the cross. He is also the one that takes our sins upon his shoulder. He is the one who uh, extends an invitation to receive him by, by grace through faith. And then he calls us as his disciples to go and tell everyone. I think it's appropriate for us to allow our minds to drift to Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How do we respond to Jesus' divine authority? We be about the gospel and we go and we proclaim who this Jesus is. In, Matthew, or in Mark 4 and 5, we're seeing the curtain pulled back on who Jesus is. This incredible, incredible Jesus will eventually be explicitly declared to be the son of God. He is the one who has divine authority. And this is to be a divine authority that messes with us. It's to change us. It's to affect us. We must respond to it. So I encourage you, as you're going throughout this week, as you go to your grace groups here in a little while, as you are going to lunch and you're thinking about this uh, for the rest of the week, remember Jesus. Remember his character as revealed here in these pages. And I urge you to respond appropriately to him. I'm going to invite the grace group shepherds to come forward. And um, uh, we're going to pray and Walt's going to lead us. And, And if you guys would like to pray or respond here and now, These Grace Group Shepherds would love to pray with you. They're talented, they're awesome, and they love doing this. So please take advantage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. And we thank you that he is revealed in such an incredible and awesome way here in Mark 4 and 5. Lord, let us submit to the amazing rule of this Jesus. Let us worship him. Lord, we praise you that you sent your son to die on our behalf. And that... This isn't some mere man, Lord. This is a, one that is fully God and fully man. We praise you for Jesus and we praise you for who he is and what he's done on our behalf. We thank you now. May you work in our hearts in unique ways as you apply the word by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.